Anyone uh, here ever taken a college level organic chemistry course? I see a number of doctors here. Yeah. And anyone ever passed a college level organic chemistry course? Because you're doctors. Apparently, organic chemistry is hard. I wouldn't really know because uh, my brief interaction with ninth grade physics convinced me that if anything were to come of me, math, chemistry, and physics equations could not be part of my life equation. I did much better in disciplines that allowed for multiple answers or no answers. I loved literature. Kafka was a dream. He meant whatever you thought he meant. Or law school, you know, when, we were, when I was in law school, it was just, here, take a case, argue any position. I did less well in disciplines where there's only one answer, right or wrong. And too often I couldn't explain myself out of the wrong answer. I'm happy to go through life with no understanding of organic chemistry. I never felt deprived. I never felt undereducated. Can never imagine ever needing to know anything about organic chemistry. But for those who want to become doctors, the stakes couldn't be higher. Passing organic chemistry is a prerequisite, still, I think, for most medical schools. In fact, the pre-med organic chemistry course often serves as a weeding out class where the group of young postulants is called Many aspiring doctors' dreams of medical school crashed against the immovable rock of organic chemistry. So the case of Professor Maitland Jones fascinates me. Have you heard about him? He literally wrote the book on organic chemistry. He taught at Princeton for decades and recently at NYU. He received multiple awards for teaching, but last spring, 82 out of his 350 students signed a petition claiming that the course was too hard and blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. At first, the university tried to placate the students, allowing them to withdraw from the class retroactively, thus sparing them a failing grade on their record. Administrators explained that this plan would extend a gentle but firm hand to the students and, they said, to those who pay the tuition bills, apparently referring to pestering, pesky, pestiferous parents whose expensive dreams is to see their precious ones graduate medical school. Alas, in the end, the university terminated the professor's contract and he was fired, explaining that his performance did not rise to the standards expected of the NYU faculty. They must have been persuaded by the student's petition that asserted that 
a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades failed to make students' well-being a priority and reflected poorly on the institution. Perhaps a subtle hint to the US News and World Report university rankings. Now, I can't assess whether Professor Jones was a good teacher or he was too hard or perhaps he had become crustier in his advanced age of 84. Some students accused him of a condescending, sarcastic, and demanding tone. He pioneered new teaching methods, and I'm in no position to judge whether they were more or less effective than previous approaches. Furthermore, I can't opine on whether organic chemistry is necessary at all for many medical disciplines. I'm happy to leave it to the professionals to debate amongst themselves whether my ENT doctor needs to know organic chemistry at all. What does involve all of us are the observations of Dr. Jones about his contemporary students. He has interacted with generations of organic chemistry students. He said, especially after COVID, students didn't return to the class in anywhere near the numbers of pre-COVID. I sympathize with that. We have the same problem here. Dr. Jones spent his own money videotaping his lectures during the pandemic, and he said students weren't watching the videos either. They simply weren't able to answer the questions. They refused, he said, to put in the necessary work to master the material. He said that as early as 10 years ago, he began to notice that students were increasingly misreading exam questions. Exam scores began to decline. Students performed abysmally on exams that would have seemed too easy a few years before. He said that even the top students while still deserving their excellent grades, were no longer being stretched. They weren't being challenged by their professors. He claimed that student evaluations, once highly useful, have become just another social media opportunity to vent. Evaluations are now often personal and sometimes profane, he said. Dr. Jones contended that even some tenured professors refuse to teach undergraduates. And untenured faculty are put in an untenable position. Their entire careers are at the peril of complaining students and deans who seem willing to turn students into nothing more than tuition-paying clients. Students need to take responsibility for failure, Dr. Jones argued. If they continue to deflect blame, they'll never grow. Failure should become a teachable moment. And teachers, he argued, must have the courage to assign low grades when students do poorly. And he emphasized, when critical thinking skills are desperately needed, it's more important than ever to dedicate ourselves to the high standards of education. Without those standards, we, as a nation, 
will not produce those individuals, doctors, engineers, scientists, citizens, who will guide us towards a better future. That argument resonated with me. It made me think. It has a kind of religious passion to it. Standards, education, rigorous study and examination, trying to ensure that the future will be better than the present and the past, and debating how science and technology can help bring about this better future. These are central preoccupations of Judaism and of all religions. In this week's Torah portion, we read of the Tower of Babel. You remember that passage? Somewhere in Mesopotamia, people decided to build a great city and an immense tower with its top in the sky. And when God came down to look at the tower, God scattered the people over the face of the earth and they stopped building the city and the tower. Now the conventional interpretation of many rabbis and scholars is that the transgression of the tower builders was their desire to build a tower touching heaven. That's how most people understand the passage. Those are the key words. Up to the sky, la shamay, to the heavens. According to this understanding, the heavens are God's realm, the moral realm. It is a warning of the danger of unbridled science. The human drive towards technological achievement carries with it the risk of destruction. Moral progress must be consistent with scientific progress or else science will be the tool of our destruction. In the nuclear age, we live with this tension every day. But Franz Kafka typically had a different understanding. I like Kafka because in contrast to organic chemistry, Kafka stories have multiple meanings, and no one really understands Kafka. There's no one right answer. Now, I'm in my element with Kafka. I can say anything I want, I can give any answer I want, and who knows, I may be right, I may be wrong, and in any case, you don't really understand Kafka either. In a short story called The City Coat of Arms, you should read it, it's one, one page long. Kafka suggests that the problem of the Tower of Babel was not scientific and technological ambition. Rather, it was the loss of ambition, the loss of a desire to learn new science and new technology. That's the gravest threat to the future. It's when we cease seeking to advance science and technology. Kafka wrote that because the tower could not be completed in one generation, people assumed that since the next generation would have greater technological proficiency, they would disdain the work of the previous generation and would want to tear down what their predecessors built and start all over again. And this, Kafka writes, paralyzed people's ambitions. Why exert oneself to the extreme limit, he wrote, if it was all going to be torn down by the next generation? In typical Kafkaesque brilliance, he writes, the people 
troubled less about the tower than the construction of a city for the workmen. In other words, the project, which began as a great technological ambition to reach the very heavens, what we might call today, to understand the mind of God, to unlock the mysteries of creation through science, to develop a understanding of how this all came to be, that that project that began with great technological ambition devolved into a project simply to satisfy human needs. They cared more about the accommodations for the workers than the project themselves. It was no longer about building the tower. It was about creating accommodations for the workers around a technological project that would never be completed. And then people began behaving like they always do. Every nationality wanted the finest quarters for itself, Kafka wrote. And this gave rise to disputes, which developed into bloody conflicts. And that's the reason God scattered all the peoples around the earth. Kafka turned the conventional analysis exactly on its head. The problem was not that they tried to reach the heavens. It was the opposite. They ceased trying to reach the heavens. Their scientific ambitions and thus their technological accomplishments atrophied. I worry when we lower academic standards. Throughout the disciplines, but especially in science, because then we paralyze our ambition. Why exert oneself to the extreme if you can get by without such exertion? Why study if you can pass the course by dumbing down the curriculum? I worry that as a society, the priority as the NYU students wrote in their petition, is the student's well-being. Not the well-being of society in graduating doctors who actually know organic chemistry. I worry that as a nation, we are becoming too soft. That feelings for us are more important than facts or knowledge and personal well-being outweighs collective well-being. Jews know in their kishkes, when we cease striving for excellence, when nations cease aspiring to touch the sky, inevitably they decline and sink into numbed mediocrity.